If you have your Bible this morning, I want to encourage you to turn over to Ephesians chapter 4. As we continue our series in this letter, we're going to look at verses 1 to 6 this morning. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, you can find it uh, printed for you there in the bulletin. Uh, here at this particular point in the letter, it's about halfway through. We've done three chapters. We've got three chapters ahead. Uh, Paul is transitioning from mainly doctrinal teaching, like teaching about the truth, to now transitioning to teaching about practice, how to put those truths into action. But don't make a mistake. Uh, when Paul was talking about doctrine, he was very practical because doctrine is always practical. It's the most practical thing in the world. At the same time, uh, when he goes to practice, he's not going to leave doctrine behind. He's not going to leave the Christian truth behind, but he's going to carry it in and show people how they ought to live now that Jesus Christ has come. And so these next two weeks in particular, as we look at you know, the verses 1 to 16, we're going to focus on the church uh, and how the church, you might say, how the church grows. Uh, this week we're going to focus on it grows through unity, and then next week it grows through the word. So let's look this morning at unity, verses 1 to 6, if you'll follow along with me as I read. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord... One faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Amen. Uh, unity is a, is a puzzle sometimes, isn't it? It's very, very hard to figure out how to achieve it. And once you achieve it, it's even harder to figure out how to maintain it. Don't you agree? Uh, everybody in this room, and I know this might be even a painful thing to bring up, but everybody in this room has experienced a relationship that has gone south and that has disintegrated because it went south. And if you go back and think about it, I, I know we could spend the next 30 minutes just listing out all the different ways that a relationship can go south and fall apart. But in summary, just about every time that happens, there is an issue of unity being broken apart. There's some level at which uh, the two people that fall out with each other stop agreeing about very important things in their lives. They stop seeing eye to eye. And when you stop seeing eye, seeing eye to eye with someone, when you stop maintaining that, every other thing, kind of like dominoes, begins to fall down. Paul says here, if the church is going to grow, the church has to not only achieve unity, because actually the church can't achieve unity, the church can only receive unity. We're going to see that this morning. We can't, we can't achieve it. We can receive it and maintain it. Once we maintain it and make all the effort in the world to maintain it, that's when a church can begin to really grow deep and grow spiritually, as well as numerically and all the other things, but especially grow spiritually. How do you do it, though? Uh, wouldn't the world give a whole lot of money if they could figure out how to achieve and maintain unity? 
Paul says God has already done that through his church, which kind of serves now as a model home. You know how when they build a, when they build a new subdivision, they often build the first house, it's the model home. You can go there and look inside the model home and figure out, okay, if I built a house in this neighborhood, this is what it would look like, feel like, smell like. Well, the church is kind of like God's model home. He builds it in the world and gives to it the gift of unity so that the whole world might come in and see what one day the new creation will be like and what their lives could be like if they came in and were a part of what we have here. So let's look at it this morning. There are three things uh, in the passage. If you'll notice in your bulletin, there's an outline. Uh, We're going to talk about why we should pursue unity as a church, how we can pursue or maintain unity, And then finally, who ultimately can give us unity or make unity possible? So the why, the how, and the who this morning of unity in the church. First of all, why? Uh, There in verse 1, if you'll look at it, Paul says unity is nothing less than an issue of our calling as Christians. Uh, The obligation to pursue unity and to maintain it is an obligation laid upon us when we were first called to belong to Jesus. But by the way, Paul often talks this way about calling. In fact, if you wanted to summarize Paul's idea of what does it mean to be a Christian, you could say a Christian is someone who's been called. Called by God, you know, and if you think about Paul's story, it makes sense why he would think about it this way or why God would tell him this because it would really harmonize with his own story. Paul was walking along the road to Damascus, and what did Jesus do when he showed up? He didn't slap him upside the head, he called him. He said, Paul, or at that time he was known as Saul, 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 why are you persecuting me? And then it says Jesus began to tell him what he must suffer for the sake of Jesus' name. In Paul's mind, to become a Christian is to be called personally by God through his son Jesus. And always along with that call comes a cost because that call is a call to worldwide unity around the throne of God. And that's never going to be popular and it's never going to be easy. In fact, notice what Paul says about himself once again in verse 1. He's always repeating this. By the way, I'm a prisoner for the Lord. He loves to bring that back up. And and we we know know, why he's doing that, because we've already noticed it in the letter. Paul is sitting in a Roman jail cell as he writes this. And remember why he was in that jail cell? Because he had gone to bat for the unity of the church, even Jew and Gentile, in one body. In those early days, they didn't see how in the world the church would ever be one. Jew and Gentile was just too big of a split. And so most people thought of easier solutions. We can have two churches, a Jewish church that follows these rules, a Gentile church that follows those rules. Paul refused to do that. Paul also refused to say that in order for a Gentile to become a Christian, they have to first become a Jew. And so he put his neck out there and he he went to bat for the Gentile believers to say, no, there's only one body of Christ. The only way to get in is through faith in him. Once you have faith in him, you're in. Nothing else is necessary. Because he did that, they arrested him and put him in jail. And so whatever it is Paul is calling us to do here, we've got we to gotta give him a whole lot of credibility. Paul is already doing what he's telling us we need to do. 
He's already done it. I mean, his whole life revolves around this. And so he says to the Ephesians there, I urge you as a prisoner in the Lord to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. I, Paul, I'm doing that. I got called by Jesus and I've been walking the way Jesus told me to walk and I'm suffering to show for it. What about you, Ephesians? What about you? Uh, If you're here today and you're not sure what you believe, or if you're watching in and you're not sure if you are a Christian or want to be one, I want you to hear it very clearly from me. To be called to, to follow Jesus is to be called to suffer. I'm not here today to sell you something easy. In fact, I'm not here to sell you anything. I'm here to commend to you a call from the Lord your God who created you to come back to him and to pursue what he wants for your life rather than what you want for your life. And that is always going to cause some manner of pain and suffering. Always. You say, well, then why in the world would I ever want to follow the call? Answer, because it's the call of God. That's why. Because the one who's issuing the call had his hands nailed open for you. That's why. It's not because it's easy that we follow God's call. It's because he has already paid a much higher price than we'll ever be asked to pay to make the call. And so Paul says here, I urge you. You can kind of sense the urgency in his voice. You've just got to learn, he says, how to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Now, that idea of worthy, the word in Greek, axios is the word. And it literally refers to the old-fashioned scales, where you have on one side of the scale something put on the plate, and on the other side you got something else put, and depending on how heavy each one is, it goes up and down like a seesaw, kids. It's like a seesaw. And Paul says, think about that seesaw, that scale. On one side is the calling of God. Wham! I mean, just imagine how heavy the call of God is. Boom! It weighs the seesaw all the way down to the ground. And he says, on the other side, as a Christian, you ought to put your own manner of life. And at first, of course, when you put your manner of life on the other side, what happens? Not much, right? I mean, the call of God is just too heavy. I mean, it's still there and we're still way up here. But Paul is saying, here's the vision for the Christian life. You're saved by grace, grace alone. But when you're saved by grace alone, the heaviness of the call will be, should begin to make your manner of life heavier and heavier. More and more weighty, more and more profound, more and more true to what God has said. So that eventually, what he's saying is eventually your manner of life ought to balance out the scale with the calling. Wow. Have you ever thought about your life that way? If you're a Christian, have you ever thought about that being the whole purpose of your life? To balance out the scale with the weighty call of God. I don't think there could be any greater purpose for life than that. And it keeps me humble to know that my purpose in life is that because I never fully achieve it. And so I'm always falling short, and I'm always having to find myself with open hands, pleading with God to work in my heart, because I need work. Work in my life, change me, because I need work. 
Paul says here one of the main ways that, that Christians together do that is you get together in church and you learn how to work out harmonious and unified relationships with each other. That's one of the ways. The reason why we pursue unity is because pursuing unity with other Christians is a part of balancing out the scale of God's calling. It's a part of seeing our lives become weighty in comparison to the surpassing weightiness of God calling out to you by name as he did to Saul. This morning, have you heard the call? Uh, Being a Christian is not just being religious. It's not just being a nice person. Being a Christian is hearing the call of God and answering it. The Christian life is not just about waiting until I get to heaven and easing through life, you know, like a cruise ship, on my way to heaven. The Christian life is about my life getting more weight placed upon it. Having to work hard at relationships in my family, in my marriage, at work. And yes, Paul is talking, emphasizing here at church. So that my life, like Paul's before me, might come to balance the scale with the call of God. That's the first thing. Uh, Secondly, this morning, Paul tells us some great things about how this unity can be attained. And I've already said, you can't attain it yourself. We can't attain it ourselves. We can't achieve it. We can only receive it. But once we receive it, we're called to maintain it. Look at what it says there in uh, verse 3. We ought to be eager to maintain. He uses that word, maintain, the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. The unity that the church has is a unity of the Spirit. It's created by the Holy Spirit. It's based on the Holy Spirit's terms. And we as Christians are called by God to simply keep it up, to simply maintain it. But I say simply, it's simple to say, but it's hard to do. Uh, I've quoted uh, this man before, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I've quoted him numerous times. His story is absolutely riveting if you've never heard the story of his life. A German pastor who was arrested by the Nazis and for standing against Hitler. He even was involved in a plot to assassinate Hitler. Uh, you really ought to go look up his life story. Uh, he ended up tragically dying in a concentration camp. But he wrote a little book called Life Together. It's about the church. It's about the community of Christians. And here's, listen to what he says about this. Those who love their dream, listen, those who love their dream of a Christian community more than the Christian community itself become destroyers of that Christian community, even though their personal intentions may be ever so honest, earnest, and sacrificial. You say, what does that mean? If you're only in love with the idea of the church in its ideal form, but aren't learning how to love the church as she actually is, you're going to be a danger to yourself and others. That's what he's saying. The call of Christianity, the call of unity, is to actually face the church as she actually is. Let me ask you a couple questions. How is the church? Is she perfect? Is she flawed? Uh, 
does she have a long way to travel before she makes it to glory? Yes. Is every individual church more or less pure or more or less good or more or less satisfying? A lot of times it's more less than more. Is that right? Always right. And many, many people come to church and get very disappointed very quickly because it's not exactly the way they think it ought to be or exactly the way they want it to be. But y'all, that is not the call to Christian community. The call to Christian community is not a consumeristic, I'm shopping for a place that suits me. The call to Christian community is nothing less than I am being gathered by God to a people who are not perfect like I'm not perfect. And, and God wants to build within me through my relationship with these people. God wants to build in me the kind of character that knows how to maintain unity together with them. Which requires stick to itness, faithfulness. It requires, well, all the things that Paul lists here. Look at them. Do you notice he lists in verse 2 and 3, three attitudes? And then he lists two actions. Three attitudes and two actions that are necessary to maintain unity within the body of Christ. The attitudes, humility, gentleness, patience. Do you tend to be long or short on those attitudes? Think about that. Are you long on those or are you short on those? Yeah. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Me too. Humility. First of all, I mean, what is humility? Uh, contrary to popular, popular belief, humility is not just being down on myself. Okay, that's not humility. Actually, sometimes when we're so down on ourselves, we're, we're self-obsessed which is the reason why we're so down on ourselves. And so humility is the opposite of that. It's not being self-obsessed. It's learning how to not have to put myself in the middle of everything. I don't have to be the center of attention. I don't have to. Every conversation is not all about me. Every situation is not all about me. That's humility. Man, we tend to be so short on that, don't we? Uh, what about gentleness? Well, it's just like it sounds. You know, gentleness is... The opposite of roughness. Learning how to turn away wrath by a gentle answer. Learning how to diffuse a situation by not ramping everything up and coming to every situation with intensity and anger. The kind of scorched earth policy that sometimes we run to when we're in conflict. Patience. I love the way the old King James translates that word. Long-suffering. Long-suffering. Wow. We're really short on that, aren't we? Uh, we're, we don't even have short-suffering down. <laughs> I don't think we're very good at short-suffering, tiny-suffering, momentary-suffering, let alone long-suffering. You know? And so the call to join the church, the call to be a part of a Christian community, is not the call to come and shop and try to find what suits me. The call to Christian community is to say, here I am, Lord, use me, I'm your servant, and it's going to require God to work in you a humility that displaces yourself, a gentleness that doesn't just want to scorch the earth every time someone offends you, and a long-suffering, a desire to walk with and bear with other people. And so you can kind of see where the two actions come from. They flow out of that. 
uh, there in verse uh, 2 and 3, there are two actions. You've got to bear with one another in love or put up with others in love. But you also got to be eager or make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Humility, gentleness, patience, or long-suffering produce the ability to stick it out with people. That's the first thing. And then the ability to be very eager to maintain the unity of Spirit in their life and yours. Which kind of brings up one of the most common pitfalls in trying to pursue relationships with other people. Um, when we think about unity, we often try to take the easy way out, don't we? And here I'm not just talking about church, but think about home too. Think about marriage. Think about parenting. Uh, what are the two ways we most often try to make unity happen? There's either on the one side, A, uh, the live and let live attitude. That I'm not going to go to conflict because that would disturb unity. And so I'm going to stuff everything. I'm not going to say the things that need to be said. I'm going to put them under the giant family rug and leave them there. And see, we have unity. Presto. Unity. It's not what Paul's saying. How do we know that's not what Paul's saying? Because he says we ought to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. The unity of the Spirit is not a contentless unity. The unity of the Spirit has truth behind it. The truth of God, the things that God says, the things that are right in life. I mean, it cares about what's right. And it, it bends over backwards. I mean, that's the way I, I like to translate that word, eager. Bending over backwards. I'm bending over backwards to try to ensure that we are unified around God's truth and God's goodness and God's holiness. That is not a sweep under the rug kind of thing, is it? It's a thing that actually ought to be willing to say things that are true, even though you should say them in love. It ought to be willing not to sweep everything under the rug, but deal with it. The second way that we try to get unity quick is what I've already called the scorched earth policy. Somebody starts to kind of rub against me the wrong way and I bring the scorched earth. We must agree, right? <laughs> we will be united. Have you ever done that at home? Never? <laughs> Have you ever seen that happen at church? We will all be on the same page or else, you know. Presto, we have unity. <laughs> That's also not what Paul's saying because, how do we know? Because Paul says you got to learn how to bear with people. That's not bearing with people. Scorched earth is not bearing with them. It's just trying to destroy and leave everything kind of charred in your wake. And yeah, there's a certain kind of unity when the whole earth is charred. But that's not, it's, I mean, yeah, right? It all looks the same. It's all char. But that's not the unity of the Spirit. And it certainly isn't learning how to long, you know, suffer long with people like us who are very slow to grow. Aren't we all slow to grow, develop, slow to come to right understanding? And so in the church, there's this delicate thing. Because we are humble... And the only reason we're humble is because we know we receive far more than we ever deserve from God. Far more than we ever deserve. Therefore, I'm humble. 
I've got to be humble. We're gentle because, man, the Lord could have been very rough with me, but he was so gentle with me. He welcomed me. And you want to talk about long-suffering? God is the king of long-suffering because he's still suffering long with me. Because of those things, in the church, there's this ability to have both things going on at once. I am very eager to maintain unity in the spirit, not to sweep things under the rug, not to not confront things that need to be confronted. I'm going to go at them, but I'm going to go at them in a way that is very patient with people, even as I have needed patience from God. And y'all, as a Christian, as a Christian family, you can have that same thing happening at your house rather than the sweep under the rug or the scorched earth policy. Here's where you need to start. Lord, fill me with the attitudes listed here. Because you will never do the two actions if you don't have the attitudes. Lord, give me humility. Give me gentleness. Give me patience. Amen? That's the how. Lastly, this morning, we've got to look at the who. This is important. Because as we said, we cannot achieve unity. We cannot make it happen. We can only maintain it. It is received because it's given by God. Um, Everybody wants unity, but everybody believes it should be based on differing things. And depending on how strong the things they're trying to base unity on depends on how strong the unity is. Uh, I grew up South Mulberry, and there's a lot of cow pastures and hay fields. Have you ever watched them bale hay? Have you ever seen that happen? Uh, they, they grow the grass out, they cut it, they dry it out, and then they come along with a baler. And it rolls the hay up. Sometimes it makes it into smaller rectangular cubes, and other times it rolls it in a big old hay bale. And how, have you ever thought about it? There's a, thousands, maybe millions of little grass pieces in a, hay, in a bale of hay. I don't know how many there are. I haven't counted. There's a lot of them. How does all those many different things get brought together in a way that they're now one thing? Because you can take a hay bale and you can actually like roll that thing around and it stays together. How does it stay together? Do you know? Baling twine, usually, sometimes netting. They have this very strong twine that they take and, and the baler kind of puts it on there and ties it. Uh, usually there's like two or three strands of it going around the bale to keep it together. If it's a square bale, they have ones going this way and ones going this way. Now imagine if you tried to bale hay instead of with baling twine, imagine you tried to use floss, dental floss. Or spider webs. Would that work? No. No. Imagine if you just tried, you took all that hay and you just picked it up and held it and tried to be the baling twine yourself. What would happen? I mean, you would not be able to do it. You've got to have something sufficiently strong to hold a bunch of stuff together. Well, in verses 4 and 5 and 6, Paul says the sufficient thing that's strong enough to hold the church together is nothing less than God himself. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God, three persons. Diversity, yet unity, right there in God himself. 
the one God who always works in a unified manner, the Father always doing what the Son does, the Son doing what the Father does, the Spirit doing what the Father and the Son does. I mean, you can see how he traces it out. There's the, the word one is used in those three verses numerous times. Verse 4 focuses on the Holy Spirit. Verse 5 on Jesus the Son. Verse 6 on God the Father. And at every step of the way, they are one. And we are, as Christians, because of faith, one with him because of his work. There is one body, he says, verse 4, and one spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. It's the spirit who puts us together in one body, the Holy Spirit. And he does it by calling us. And then verse 5, Jesus, there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. We become united to the one Lord by faith, which is what baptism shows you. When someone's baptized, it's showing that when a person believes... That faith is not just a mental thing. That faith is a spiritual reality that actually marries you to Jesus so that you can never be separated from him again. And then he mentions the Father, verse 6. There is one God and one Father of all who is over all, through all, and in all. We've all been brought to the same Father, the Father in heaven, the Father of Jesus. And so in God there are three and yet there's one God who has worked in one unified plan to save his one people, meaning we are many different people. We are very diverse. All churches are. The church around the world has a dizzying kind of diversity, if you start to think about it. I mean, all different kinds of people, all different languages, all different walks of life, and yet the bailing twine is Father, Son, and Spirit, which is why we can't create the unity. We can only receive it and zealously maintain it. Contrast that with the way that our world tries to find world peace and unity. They use some very flimsy bailing twine. Have you ever noticed, uh, back when you were in high school, you were so close to these people, the people that you went to high school with, and then you went, say, to your 25-year anniversary or your 30, 40, 50-year anniversary, and you didn't quite mesh with them the way that you used to? Well, why is that? Well, well, number one, you've been distant from them, of course. But number two, back then, what was your unity based on? You went to the same school. That's a pretty flimsy basis for unity because, you know, at a certain point, you graduated from that school. When you don't go to that school anymore, and so you don't have that in common anymore, therefore your basis of unity is completely shot, which is why you haven't kept up with each other, which is why you sit through that long, awkward dinner, <laughs> and it doesn't feel anywhere near as fun as it used to when you were 16 years old. Well, that's a small example, but I, I would argue this morning that the same exact thing happens when we try to base our unity on nationality. That's bigger than school, but it's still flimsy compared to God. When we try to base it on race or ethnicity, when we try to base it on even, even family ties. Because the matriarch is going to die one day. And you know what happens when that happens? 
A lot of times, the family is not quite, I mean, you know, the one that was kind of holding it all together dies, and then every, everybody scatters. I've seen it a lot of times. Very painful. You know what? One basis of unity in all the world will never, ever get scattered because you can't scatter it. You will not be able to scatter the Father from the Son and from the Holy Spirit ever. They are one. Always have been, are, and always will be. Therefore, if our unity is based on Him, our unity cannot be shot and cannot be scattered. Y'all hear that? Jesus' plan for world peace is way better than anybody else's plan for world peace. It might not be quick, Jesus' plan. It might not be quick, but it's extraordinarily effective and extraordinarily eternal. Because one day on this earth, there is going to be one people who are every single one of them from the heart out completely devoted to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and only to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And because they're devoted to Him, they're going to be completely devoted to one another. We're not there yet, but that day's coming. And Jesus, in this model home called the church, is starting to show what that's going to look like now. If we can keep it. If we'll maintain what God has already given to us. Isn't that good? In closing, think about this. This is what one pastor... Uh, writing back in, I think it was the 1950s, said. He says, Has it ever occurred to you that if you tune 100 pianos all to the same tuning fork, all the pianos are automatically tuned to each other? They're of one accord by being tuned, not to each other, but to another standard to which one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers met together in a church, each one looking away to Christ are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. That's A.W. Tozer. Jesus' plan for world unity is not to get people excited about world unity singing kumbaya, sweeping a bunch of stuff under the rug, or scorched earth, trying to enforce somebody's vision of the world on the world. Jesus' plan for world unity is simply this. Tune them all to the same tuning fork. Gather them all to my Father and their Father. Gather them all to me and my death on the cross. Gather them all in the Holy Spirit, and guess what? You will have a true and a lasting unity, a real unity. Best news of the day right here. We are a part of that. This church is a part of that. Wow. Let's ask God to help us maintain it. Amen.